Ever since you can remember, you felt something in your chest telling you to move, to love, to speak, to try. Day after day, you pretend you don't hear it calling, or maybe you dismiss it as silliness or worse. But it's there, ready for you, and it will wait for you as long as you need. My name is Johnny G, and I invite you to join me on a journey of awakening as we dare to embrace our light. This is Refractive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Refractive. I'm your host, Johnny G. Today, I have the pleasure of presenting you not only an amazing guest for our show, but a very dear friend of mine, Danny Burler. Danny lives in Washington, D.C., and has had an incredibly inspiring spiritual journey, and I think it will be of value to you, uh, my listeners. So welcome, Danny. I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you, Johnny. I'm glad to be here. So, you know... As you and I met in 2015, you had been a really instrumental part of my own spiritual seeking, uh, a mentor and a role model, um, and not to put any pressure on you there, of course, but you know, someone who I saw walking a path that resonated with me, and I didn't quite know what it was about. I didn't understand what was going on inside of you, but I saw qualities in you that I wanted for myself. And over the years, I've come to learn more about your story and what brought you to the place you are today. And I would love for you to just tell the listeners about your spiritual journey, what's kind of the framework around it that inspired it, and kind of the main milestone milestones in your life that brought you up to today. And then afterwards, we can go a little bit deeper in some certain aspects of it. Okay, well, thank you, Johnny, for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm happy to tell you um, a piece of my story because you know, we all have big, long stories. And this is just sort of one part of it. Um, I, you know, had always been kind of on a quest, uh, you know, and but this particular part of my story happens to be about my adoption journey. And I was adopted as an infant. And uh, along with my two older sisters, we all three were adopted um, in a loving family and, and all that. Um, and yet it, it was always a thing, right? And um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, probably early 2000s, yeah, I was um, uh, in therapy. And I wanted to make some changes in my life. I was in a job that, you know, I enjoyed, but I really wanted to be doing something different. And I didn't understand, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something different. And I had started planning. Uh, I did a two-year sort of uh, business plan to, to quit everything, quit, quit my job, sell everything, and move down to Charleston, South Carolina to open a, a garden center. I'm sure I cannot relate at all with this type of plan. <laughs> right. And, um, and, you know, but there was a part of me that was just stuck. Right. And I said to my therapist at the time, listen, I will do anything. I'm willing to look under any rock to change my life. And, you know, but I don't know what that is. And, and he looked at me and he said, well, Danny, the obvious rock in the middle of the room is your adoption. And I said, 
what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? And, you know, we did that a lot with each other. And, and he said, Danny, your, your adoption is the elephant in the room. It's the big, it's the big rock, you know, under the rug that, you know, you've, everything has been going around and, you know, it had always been there, but I never thought it was a thing. Both my sisters had always thought it was a thing, but I never thought it was a thing. You felt um, at peace around it. You felt kind of like, okay, well, I mean, it is what it is and I'm not, I don't have questions and it's all good. Yeah. I mean, I always sort of, there were things, aspects that I wondered about, obviously, you know, who do I look like, you know, where do I come from? Um, you know, all that, but I mean, I, I love my mom, you know, and my dad and, um, any sort of, it always felt like any, uh, will any opening of that door felt like betrayal, you know, which is very common among adoptees, you know, it just is a thing. Um, and, you know, I was, I felt very fortunate to have the life that I had. And I, I just, um, it was sort of like, uh, you know, it's good enough. Let sleeping dogs lie. Right. You know, I, I always said when I was much younger and, and you're, some of your listeners may or may not remember, but I always said, you know, I read, I read Ann Landers, you know, I, I know, <laughs> I know how this ends, you know, this, but this was back in the, you know, a long time ago when I, when Ann Landers was, you know, a thing now it's asking me, I guess. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay, you know, I'm willing to look under any rock and, um, you know, make a very long story short, I started the search. And what that involves is at that time, um, adoptees like me are not entitled to receive um, any information about our birth parents. You know, our original um, birth certificate uh, is sort of our vital record is is locked up and put away. And what I have is called an amended birth certificate where they sort of white out the real parents' name, the birth parents' names, and put in, you know, my mom and dad's names and my new name and all that. And that's that. And so, but what I am entitled to, what I was entitled to at the time was to receive what's called non-identifying information. And what that looked like was I wrote away to the, I wrote to the adoption agency through which I was adopted. And you pay them, you know, 250 or $500, whatever it was, I don't remember. Um, and they basically pull out the file from 50 years ago, or at that time, 40 years ago, um, and they open it up and they transcribe everything that's in there about your birth parents and their families or anything that they gave you, any information at all that they gave them, um, omitting anything that might identify them. So, um, so for example, if your father, if my birth father had been secretary of state they would say he was a high-ranking government official or something. Okay. Like that. They would never sort of give away the actual anything that would allow me to find find him or her, um, in theory. And so what I received was four pages, four typewritten pages of non-identifying information, wow. which was a lot. Yeah, I my, wouldn't have expected that. No, my sisters each got you know like a couple paragraphs. You know, I got four mm -hmm. pages, and so. Um, it was astonishing. You know, I was, I was blown away because um, I discovered um, a big part of my story, not the whole story, but I, I discovered a big part of the story. And what I discovered was my birth mother was 38 years old at the time. And she was married to a man who was not my birth father. Um, so she was, had an affair. 
Um, she had two children who were teenagers, a 13-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl at that time. And um, uh, in the information, she uh, described her entire family, all of her brothers and sisters, her parents, her grandparents, occupations, uh, educations, um, skin tone, eye color, hair color, the whole thing. Like she was wow. a twin, you know, like she gave a lot of information, which again, my, my sister, one of my sisters got, got nothing. And I think the reason is because she was a grown woman. She was 38 years old and had two children. And she, you know, was, I don't know whether she was thinking ahead or what, but, um, uh, you know, so that was the story. And I, so, so the other piece of this was, um, I was, uh, adopted through a Jewish agency and my parents, my adoptive parents who are my parents, uh, are Jewish. And I was raised in a Jewish household, a Jewish household. I, we, I was never bar mitzvah or anything like that. Uh, but, um, uh, but culturally, you know, um, I was raised in a Jewish household. And so it turns out that she was Jewish and she was um, of Eastern European descent, you know, Polish and Russian. And um, I'm like, okay, Eastern European Jew. So I'm Jewish. Okay. I always kind of felt Jewish, but you know, I, I don't know if that's just part of being part of the tribe or what, but you know, I, you know, it just seemed like the, it seemed like the thing. Right. And so I, I wasn't surprised when I discovered that. What I was surprised by was my, the information about my birth father. And um, he uh, also was married, not to my birth mother. Um, and uh, they had worked together um, and had become, he had become a friend of the family. And uh, like he, they worked together a few years prior and he had become a friend of the family. And um, uh, he also had children. He had a young child at that time, one, a daughter, and um, he was 51 years old. And um, so, you know, grown man, etc. And he had come, <clears throat> he was from Egypt. He had just uh, come to Egypt um, as like after the last revolution back in the late 50s mm -hmm. um, and over there. And so, you know, I see this information and I'm like, Egypt, you know, in a million years, you know, I mean, who thinks about Egypt? Come on, you know, I mean, it's just, it was never in the forefront. I mean, Italy, this, that, and then, you know, I could come up with any number of things, but I never would have guessed Egypt, right? And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm not funny looking, I'm exotic. I have that, you know, <laughs> you know it sort of explained everything to me, you know, and, um, uh, you know, so it was quite a thing to discover about myself, right? And yeah. He, again, all kinds of information about his family. He was mm -hmm. one of 12 brothers and sisters. Um, he had nine sisters, all of whom were college educated. And, you know, and I'd done a lot of reading as part of my searching. And, uh, you know, um, less than 1% of women in Egypt were even literate in the first part of the 20th century. And to have nine daughters who were all college educated, he obviously came from a prominent wealthy family, mm -hmm. you know, and which is fine. Like that's, that's his, that's him, not, not me, you know what I mean? But it was just, you know, interesting. It was more information. Yeah. Um, I also discovered that he, um, uh, like in, in the information, um, 
there were lots of things such as that his uh, he was had a degree in arts and radio engineering, which is was sort of like like wave propagation, like physics, I guess is what I would call it. And I have a physics degree and an engineering degree. And uh, his brother ran a large transportation system. That's what it said in the information. And I happen to be a transportation engineer and planner. And so I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, so, but again, when you're adopted, you know, you just, there's these little crumbs that you just cling to, you know, cause that's all you've got, you know, there's literally nothing else. There's no photograph. There's no more information than that, mm-hmm. but that was a lot more information. That was four pages of information that I had had more than I ever had before. Um, so I get this information. I'm blown away. I'm like, okay, wow, this is cool. The next step, the next obvious step is to initiate a search, um, which is a whole process. I won't go into any detail on that other than to say that happened. Um, it went nowhere and the judge resealed the records and that was, and that was it. And I was done. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, I looked at the rock in the middle of the room and I've done as much as I went and took it as far as I could go. I'm ready to go and open this business. And that was what I did. So I quit my job. I sold everything. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and I spent the next four years opening, opening and operating a beautiful garden center that I built from scratch. And, um, and it was just beautiful. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was, it was incredible. I renovated a 1.4 acre, you know, piece of property, the, a place where they had sold uh, service boats out of at the time or pre- for years and years previous. And I turned it into a show place and did great. The first year I was open, um, did over a million dollars in sales. And, um, and my average sale was four times the national average, you know, like it was, it was, I was killing it. Um, I hadn't broken even, but you know, it was sort of on a good trajectory, right? And um, then the second year, um, all, you know, I finally learned what I learned what I was doing. I'd never owned my own business before and things were sort of bumping along. And then 2008 came. And for those of you who may not remember, you know, there was a giant economic downturn in 2008 and I couldn't keep it afloat. And, uh, you know, I kept sinking more money into it and sinking more money into it and extending my credit cards and borrowing against this and borrowing against that. And um, I uh, ultimately, you know, I was sort of in for a penny in for a pound. Right. And I cashed in all my retirement, any retirement that I had in 401ks and that sort of thing and uh, literally put everything in and around, I remember, you know, it was almost the day, it was sort of mid-May um, uh, when it was clear in 2008 that this was going to be a problem. Gas prices shot up to $4 a gallon and people stopped buying pansies, you know, and they certainly stopped buying uh, very expensive outdoor garden furniture <laughs> and that kind of thing. And um, you know, I had to let people go. I mean, I, I, I must have redone my budget, you know, a hundred times at least, if not 200 times. Um, and, you know, I just, I kept hope alive. I just kept, this is going to work. This is going to work. And, um, and it worked for a long time until November <laughs> of that year of 2008. 
and a series of events happened and uh, a creditor I was there was a the Charleston Garden Show, which is a beautiful, typically a beautiful show at a, one of the plantations in Charleston. And uh, I had a big giant sort of uh, um, display set up, you know, with plants, pots and furniture, like it was beautiful. It rained the entire weekend. Nobody came. Like there were, you know, 12 people through the whole, through the whole show. It wasn't just me. I mean, it was a whole pavilion of, of people who uh, invested, you know, it was sort of a last ditch effort really was what it was for me and it was over it was a Sunday evening it was a Sunday afternoon and the sun finally came out you know and we packed up um everybody packed we packed everything up into the truck and um the you know the guys were driving the truck back and I was in my own car and I was driving home you know down this beautiful you know beautiful sort of country road with covered in trees, live oaks with Spanish moss hanging. And, you know, uh, I was listening to my messages and my general manager, Katie, called and said, hey, Danny, um, this, per this Jay, a guy named Jay came in, um, who was the owner of a large, very large wholesale growing nursery down there in South Carolina. And he had fronted me um, these beautiful plant tables, display tables, mm -hmm. like, the whole place was a show place because he fronted me these tables and I was making payments on them, you know? Yeah. Um, but I had stopped making payments several months earlier and uh, he never said anything, you know, and I was always going to make the next payment and I never did, you know, like it was all, we were all in a pickle and he was in the same bind that I was in and everybody else in the country. And um, his bankers came to him and said, well, what, what, who owes you money, you know? And he was like, and he went down the list and sure. of course I was on the list. And she said, well, listen, Jay came by looking for you. <laughs> he came by to, to break my knees, right? He had a bat, I, yeah. Lead pipe. And uh, I was like, uh oh, cement booty time. And I knew right then it was over. You know, there were no more, I had no more money. There were no more tricks up my sleeve. Like I had taken it all the way to the end. And, um, and I knew it was done. I literally, I knew just, and I, there was a peacefulness that came over me, you know, like, because I tried for a year, you know, for two years at first to get it off the ground, you know, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And then to keep it afloat, you know, every trick up my sleeve, there weren't, there weren't any more. And sort of a peacefulness came over me and I, and I called the president of the old company where I used to work and uh, I left it, you know, I called a cell phone. It was Sunday you know, afternoon and I left him a message and I said, Hey, you know, um, I don't know if you still have room for a guy like me with my, you know, with, you know, what my skills and talents are. Um, but I may be coming available uh, here in the next several months. Yeah. And, um, and that was it. It was sort of my, way of like being clear that it was over and so i came home that night that evening and uh i one of the saving graces for me that entire four years that i was in charleston i did yoga every single day uh -huh. and i did a particular style of yoga called chiva mukti yoga which i won't go into that whole thing but um 
part of the deal with that yoga was the beginning of every, there was always a meditation piece and there was always a Dharma talk and the beginning of every class, you were asked to offer your efforts to another being, right? And, you know, uh, so that when you were in some, you know, crazy, uncomfortable pose, you know, you may not be able to hold the pose for five breaths for yourself, but if you thought about that person or that other being, um, you know, it usually, you could usually do it for them, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, it's usually your mother or your best friend who you're arguing with or your cat or, you know, or some, somebody that would help you, you know, um, somebody that would help you get through the class. And at the beginning of that class, it, it was not, it wasn't an extraordinary class, you know, um, the teacher was a great teacher. In fact, it was someone who, had, who I had introduced to yoga to begin with. Um, and he ended up going on to become a yoga teacher of that style. And so, uh, so he was teaching the class, uh, Bahama Mark was his name. And because uh, he was from the Bahamas, so he had an accent, you know, and um, it was just a regular class. But at the beginning of that class, I offered my efforts to my baby. The name of my store was called Down to Earth. And, um, uh, and our tagline was Garden Up. Down to Earth, Garden Up. And we'd always say, Garden Up, dude. And, uh, and I had never even, in years, it had never occurred to me to offer my efforts to this, my baby, like it was my baby. Like, I mean, I created this thing. I, I conceived it, I birthed it. This was my baby. And, um, and I had no idea what was going to happen, you know, like, um, I hadn't thought about it a long time, you know, um, but I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, like, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I didn't know what was going to happen to my cats. I didn't know what was going to happen to my house. I didn't know what was going to happen to my employees. I didn't know how I was going to get rid of all the inventory. I didn't know what was going to happen with the lease. I didn't, I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I just knew it was over, right? I was, it was very clear it was over. And, you know, I offered my efforts to my baby, right? And that was it. And I just went through the class and I did my thing. And, you know, halfway through, you know, a bunch of downward dogs or whatever, um, all of a sudden it just came to me from nowhere. Like I wasn't thinking about my adoption or anything at all. And from nowhere, I had clarity on the events around my birth. And I understood the confusion that must have been going on with my birth father and her husband. Because by the way, he was her husband, not my birth father. He was my legal parent. And in fact, he was the one who signed my relinquishment papers, not because she was her husband, he was her husband, not my birth father. So there must have been a great deal of confusion with them. Uh, there must have been a great deal of confusion around what, what was going to happen, what was going to happen to them, what was going to happen to me. They literally handed, she handed her baby over, you know. Um, to an agency, yeah, not knowing anything that would ever be what would become of me, right? Right. And and in that moment, like from nowhere, I was just like, oh my God, I understand 
confusion that must have happened and that she didn't know it was going to happen to me. She didn't know it was going to happen to her. You know, she's married to her husband and found out, you know, he knew that um, because in that information also, it had said, you know, they, they all worked with the agency to decide what was best for everyone and mm -hmm. neither, neither was willing to leave their marriage. And, um, and, but my birth father knew or my, my her husband knew the deal, right. That yeah. she had, um, had an affair. And so, um, it just, it just dawned on me like the, the confusion, the, the, the uncertainty around everything yeah. around my whole beginning, right. Around mm -hmm. my, her baby, around the baby. And, and just from nowhere, it wasn't a forgiveness thing that hit me. It was an understanding. Like I came to understand what they must've gone through. And I came to get some compassion for her you know, and for all of them, you know, and the whole situation. Um, and it was amazing. And, and later I remember, uh, you know, in, in my yoga classes, you know, our teachers were very big on studying, you know, the, the literature, you know, um, um, the Bhagavad Gita and the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and all kinds of, you know, um, you know, the foundations of yoga and, Hinduism and Buddhism and things like that. And one of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras says, when non-greed is established, um, the circumstances of your birth up, will become known. And I don't know that non-greed was established <laughs> in that moment, but you know, when you're opening it, when you have a business and you're just trying to keep it going, it's very much a um, I mean, I was never like grabbing to be greedy you know i don't think that greed was my motivation um uh at all but and yet it was still very much a doing anything it took to make it happen and to keep it going right and so when i knew it was over you know any sort of clinging any sort of grasping any of that that may be akin to greed um, that all went away, right? Yeah. Because it was done. Mm -hmm. And I realized like, oh my God, you know, not when non-greed was established, the circumstances of my birth and understanding of my birth came to me, you know, without any, um, without anything other than offering my efforts to my baby, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know at that time that the whole purpose behind me opening a business or anything was just to have to come to that understanding. Um, but I will tell you like what I realized then, and I know now, if that was the only thing, and there was so much more, <laughs> yeah, so much more that came from that process of opening a business and the people I met and everything I learned. If that was the only thing, then it was worth it. Yeah. And it was totally worth it because that I believe was the whole purpose behind the whole purpose behind it. Yeah. So, it's a big so deal. There you go. So you're in this situation, right? Where you have this very 
deep emotional healing that's taking place and your life has been broken down to like physically nothing right like you are like you have you have nothing left you don't have you don't have any physical security left right yeah i didn't know it i was about to lose my house i well i mean i i suspected it but i lost my house i lost everything bankruptcy i lost my house i lost everything yeah, yeah. i came back to washington you know with 92 dollars to my name yeah so you know what what did that clear space for I mean, evidently a cleared space for that experience, you know, as it was happening. But I think, you know, it really cleared space for you know, it allowed me to um, understand what it meant to turn my will and my life over to the care and protection of my higher power. That's what it provided space for. And you know, it's always easy when, when you're in a bad situation, you know what I mean? Um, but it's, it's, it's not always so easy when you're in a good situation, you know, but I have, it's, it's a lesson that I learned. You know, there's one more piece to this that I often forget to tell. Um, it depends on the story that I'm telling, but two weeks after I closed my business, you know, I thought I had lost everything. You know, I hit bottom. I thought I had literally lost everything. And uh, my cat Henry up and died. Just from nothing, from fine to in two days, he was gone. Three days, he was gone. And Henry was the sweetest, sweetest little cat. I've had crazy cats. He was, he was the sweetest little thing sweetest little being in the entire world next to the word love in the dictionary was a picture of his little <laughs> sweet round face he was kind of he was kind of cross-eyed he was kind of dumb he would like walk along the edge of the table and <laughs> fall off you know he was he was not really you know um a regular cat you know and he just was a love he was a lover he just wanted to all he wanted to do was lick you he just wanted to just lick and kiss and drink water that's all he wanted and um he up and down can relate yeah. <laughs> and so just he lost the use of his legs, his front legs, and then the next day his back legs. Ooh. And by the day after that, he was gone. And I was holding him, you know, and I got to have the experience of holding him. And I was not happy about this, right? I mean, I already lost everything. And now here I was, this little cat being taken. Like the cat too? Come on. Cat too, right. I went from I just kind of circled <laughs> at that point. And that night, you know, and I, I'm a, I pray, you know, and I've always, um, um, I hit, I pray on my knees. I always have, you know, despite being a Jew who supposedly Jews don't pray on their knees, but I, I always hit my knees. Um, and that night, I remember um, I couldn't thank God for taking little Henry from me. You know, like, I just, I, I don't know how I can thank you for taking him. Like, I just, I can't be grateful for that. And then I. So like you're, you, in your prayer, you look for gratitude um, in all the things that happen, the things that make you feel good and the things that make you feel bad. Right, right. And, and I just couldn't find it. And then it hit me that I can't 
I can't be grateful. I couldn't be grateful for Henry being gone, but I could be grateful for the experience. Mm -hmm. And I found gratitude in the experience of having had Henry, having gotten to, you know, um, be his caregiver for nine years and, and experience the love. And I got to have gratitude for the experience of holding him and being present and being able to just literally hold him as he sort of finished his journey here in this lifetime. And that I found gratitude in. And so one of the things that I've been able to do, and I still do every morning when I wake up, is I just say, thank you for the experiences. You know, Mm -hmm. let me have the experiences for you. And I offer, just like I offered my efforts on my yoga mat, um, I offer my experiences, you know, to my higher power. Yeah. So if we fast forward to today, and you look back at this, this journey, what, uh, what is different about your life today because of what you experienced through this coming to terms with your adoption, closing your business? You know, in other words, what grew out of that soil? Wow. Um, well, lots happened. <laughs> since then i mean i closed my store that was two, that was 13 years ago that was mm-hmm. 2009 and um i've since come back and had several jobs um some that i didn't care for um others that i have cared for i was laid off of a job once my company sort of merged with another company a two forty-five thousand person company people company person companies merged together and um you know senior leadership they they didn't need duplicative uh you know leaders and uh so i was me and 2500 of my closest friends you know got laid off in that and the other thing that's happened is um i ended up uh searching and finding the identities of my birth parents Mm -hmm. and i found their names and I met their children and I got pictures and I heard stories and um, and that and I also went to court um, to try and get access which ended up going I ended up going to the DC Court of Appeals which is sort of like our Supreme Court you know which is a huge that's a huge thing um, and uh, you know so I think what I got from that experience was courage, you know, more courage than I ever knew that I had to, uh, that I could do anything, you know, and that I could live through anything. Yes. You know, that I could live, that I could take anything that I, I came to understand that, um, if, if I'm supposed to have the experience of being homeless, I'll be okay. Yes. No matter what, you know, if I'm supposed to have the experience of what have you, um, I'll be okay because it's an experience that I'm here to have. And if I can share it with others and pass it along, um, pass my experiences along, um, then I am just here for that purpose, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I, I actively participate in adoption 
you know, groups to, you know, um, share my experience with them. Um, and I am in 12-step recovery and I share my experience there. And um, yeah, I, the, the experience I have is, and don't get me wrong, it's not a perfect, this is not a perfect science. It is not linear. Um, I have absolutely have my ups and downs. COVID was, you know, very, very difficult for me. And the first, you know, the first year of COVID was, was hard. Uh, it, it took me to some places, right? But what I will say is I, I know I'm fine. I know I'm cared for. I know I'm good. I know what, no, no matter what happens, you know, um, you know, I have a beautiful home now, which is crazy. I, I literally had nothing. Um, and I know that everything is temporary, you know, and that um, no matter what happens, I'll be okay. Um, as long as uh, I just put one foot in front of the other and keep going and do what's in front of me. You know, this is, as you were speaking, I, I started to think about the relationship of faith to fear. And I know a lot of people in my life that, um, let's say faith and religion play a big part for them. And it's a very, it's very important to, to, to them in their lives. And on the outside, I can't possibly know what's really happening on the inside, but on the outside, I see a lot of panicking around, uh, well, I, I just see a, a lot of evidence of fear, you know, and in my journey, Danny, as you know, um, from our conversations, fear has, um, fear for me has diminished as faith has increased. And it's been a really incredible gift for me to, like you said, I, a year ago, a year ago, I was penniless, right? I had prepaid for this for this six month place to stay. I had six weeks left. I had no money, almost no income. Nothing was coming in. I was living off credit cards and it's like, okay, I will sleep in my car. Like I'll do it. Like I, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do this. Like, like I'm willing to receive whatever direction comes to me. I'm willing to do the best I can with my discernment. And I'm, I don't want to do it. I don't want it, but I'll do it. And I will soak up the experience, right? Because I trust that nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And it doesn't mean that I'm giving up agency. It doesn't mean that I'm not trying to do things, but it means that, hey, I'm here for the ride, you know? And um, I see kind of that similar attitude from you, uh, I see the, like you said, listen, whatever happens, death, disaster, poverty, whatever comes my way, it's like, okay, I certainly have my preferences, might not be what I want, but I'm okay with it. I don't need to scramble. I don't need to clamp down and hold a newspaper over my head and, you know, hide in fear. And I wonder how that has been for you and what has opened up for you because of the growth of your faith. Yeah, um, you know, you've covered a lot there and several things. Um, 
uh, of course, I just I should have been writing it down. I forgot one of the things already. But you know, I was just talking to. Um, look, fear doesn't go away, right? We all experience fear. It's it's I still just I can have faith all day long, and I still experience fear. I mean, I believe that faith. I believe that courage is means uh, having fear and doing it anyway, mm -hmm. right? That's what courage is. So fear doesn't go away, right? Always. It has diminished a great deal, um, but it rears its head all the time. I mean, on a daily basis, certainly. I, I was just talking to um, a girlfriend this morning and she's been dating this guy. He's a doctor or something, or he's in medical school and uh he ran into the chaplain right in the hospital and uh and the chaplain asked him this question and she's reading this text and the text was what and the question was what keeps you going and so she's just relating this to me and i said wow <laughs> and and i said well what did he say and he said uh he couldn't, he didn't, he couldn't answer that question right then. And the chaplain said, you know, that's okay. Like, you don't need to answer that question right then. And, and I said, you know, that's so interesting. And I said, you know, it sounds cheesy, but what keeps me going is faith, you know, and it's not a religious faith, right? It's not a religious faith. I don't practice any sort of organized religion. Um, but I do have faith in the universe. You know, I do have faith that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's big, you know, my, my, my God is big, you know, my faith is big. It's big enough for all of it, you know, and there's no way my puny mind will ever figure out anything, you know, but I, I have had the experiences, you know, and I believe that when we step out in faith, um, you know, we are held. And, and I think that faith begets faith, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that's just simply been my experience. And so I don't know, you know, like I said, I've had my ups and downs, you know, and like we all have, like we all do. And I know I will continue to do that. And, um, but I try to, I trust I am where I'm supposed to be. You know, and I remember what I was thinking was I was telling a friend, you know, I'm dense, right? And I believe the universe will beat you over the head, you know, with a two by four until <laughs> until you get it, you know, until yeah. you get the message. And I don't want to live in that kind of pain, you know. Right. And and sometimes the universe will kill you. You know, people die because they don't get the message. They're not willing to to hear it. And um and I believe that, uh, you know, lots of um, spiritual texts will say, you know, you can take the circuitous path or you can just go straight there, right? Like you don't need, you can fight and you can crawl up the mountainside, you know, climbing up the rocks and everything, or you can just sort of walk up the path, you know, like you can take the hard way or you can take the easy way. And I try to take the easy way now. Like, I don't need to take the hard way. You know, yeah. I, I, I still do. Yeah, no, I mean, I still do, but I don't, I know that I don't need to. And what I often ask, what I often say is, just give me the information I need in a way that I can understand it, right? 
because I'm dense, you know, and, you know, you can beat me with a two by four, but just, just tell me what I need to know and I'll do it. You know, I will, I'll do it. Like I'll conform, you know, I'll do whatever my higher power asks me to do as long as I understand what it is, you know, and, um, and I trust, you know, I pray every day to, you know, please guide my thoughts and my actions and my words. So they reflect your will and not mine. Now, I don't know if that is always true or happening, but I trust what comes out of my mouth now. You know, I trust whatever I'm doing. Even when I'm saying or doing stuff that's crazy or isn't always right or may not be kind or, you know, or whatever the case may be, like I wanna be kind and I wanna do the right thing and I wanna be good, um, but you know, I let sometimes, sometimes if I say something harsh to somebody, you know, and I, I don't purposely want to hurt their feeling. I'm, I'm not out to hurt anyone's feelings, right? But sometimes people's feelings get hurt, you know, and I can apologize for it and I can do all that. And I do. Um, and in the end, I'll just say, well, I mean, maybe... I just happened to be the deliverer of something that this person needed to hear. And I, it's not up for me to decide. That's right. And that's, that's what I've come to, you know, so that's how I kind of try and conduct myself today, you know, yeah. to my ability. And that's at work. That's, that's in life. That's everywhere, you know? And again, it is not a perfect sign. You know, I am, we are not saints, right? I am not a saint, you know, um, not even close to it, um, but but I try hard, you know. Mm -hmm. Try hard. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I, we we can't go into there. It's time for us to wrap up. But I, I I'll tell you the idea of when I say that nothing happens in God's universe by mistake. That includes the pain. That includes the thing the times people step on our toes, right? And so what is the ratio of like, this person's just being a jerk and this person is being a tool of the creator, right? Like I, 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 I can't possibly know all of that, but right. um, it helps me to, to be more gentle with myself, to right. say the times that I've been selfish and it's hurt another person, I can say, yes, I, I can hold to a higher ideal and I can, uh, I can maintain visibility of my values so that my life aligns as best as I can do it with God's will. And I trust that every time I hurt someone, um, that it's going, it's going to be milked for all it's worth by the universe. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And I'll just, and I know we have to wrap up, but as a closing thought, I mean, one of the things that I've come to learn, and I don't practice this every day, but my way of showing gratitude is to enjoy my life mm -hmm. and enjoying my life. Fun, F -U -N, fun is not my middle name. It never has been, you know, like it's just, I'm a, I mean, I like to laugh. I mean, I like to laugh. I like to have fun. But I'm also a very serious person, you know what I mean? And I'm, you know, and I don't, I haven't always enjoyed all the gifts, you know, I haven't always enjoyed my life. And I, 
I don't believe we have to go through life wearing sackcloth, you know, burlap. <laughs> I don't believe that we have to, you know, beat ourselves up and that we're miserable sinners or anything like that. I, I believe life is meant to be lived. Life is for the living and it's meant to be enjoyed. You know, um, that doesn't mean, you know, every minute of the day, but it means, you know, enjoying the little things. And I, I'm trying really hard to show my gratitude to my God, um, for all the experiences, yes. um, by enjoying them and appreciating, enjoying, enjoying everything that I have access to and appreciating, you know, all the experiences and, uh, whatever, you know, and keeping, keeping things flowing, right. Keeping money flowing out there, keeping whatever money I get, you know, I try to, you know, um, there was an old Louise Hay used to say, you know, when you're paying your bills, you know, back in the old days, you know, kiss the envelope before you stick it in the mailbox, you know, <laughs> say thanks for the money, you know, and knowing and trusting that it's there, you know, and thank you for people trusting you to pay them, you know, and all yeah. that stuff, like keeping it flowing and not trying to cling to it, you know, yeah. it, it, it has made all the difference. The, the road less traveled has made all the difference. Thank you, Danny. I'm so grateful for you uh, to to share some of your experiences with us and uh, and give us visibility on that part of your story. And uh, it's been beautiful. And, uh, you know, I just appreciate it. Thank you, Johnny. Love you. Love you, too. Everyone, thank you again for tuning in to Refractive. Have a great day and always remember to aim your light. Take care. You've been listening to Refractive Podcast, and this is Johnny G. If you found today's content uplifting, if you think it might make somebody's day better, give it a share on social media, click like, subscribe. All those things help to expand this podcast availability to new audiences. I'm a speaker, a coach, and a facilitator based out of Washington, D.C., but I travel a lot. If you think I can be of service to you or to your organization, help people get unstuck or move into their authentic power, shoot me an email. My email address is refractive podcast at gmail.com. Take care. Thanks for listening and aim your light.